Good morning to everyone. Hope you've got a little cup back in the back. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today as a conclusion to our message. We're in part three, and I have to say at the get-go, I'll be so glad to get out of this series. This has been one of the most difficult, depressive series I have ever been in. But nevertheless, to not speak to it would be rebellion, wouldn't it? On my part, it would be rebellion. So I hope this has been uh, eye-opening to you. I know it's sometimes problematic, but nevertheless, it's what we live in, and we want to address it. So let me encourage you once again, buy the book, read the book, and meditate on the book. This will help you. There's a couple of resources we put in there, and it'll just give you a glimpse on what's going on in our culture and in our world today in your workplace and all around you every time you turn the TV on. You are impacted by what we call cultural Marxism. And the answer is God. You know, what are we going to do about this, Lord? And the Lord says, return to my word. The church has the answer. So I want to hop in this morning. We think about this week is the National Day of Prayer. This coming Thursday, we're going to have our church open If you want to come by and pray, by the way, God hears you from your home just as well as he does right here, but uh, we will leave the building open if you want to come in and pray. You're welcome to do that. But this coming Thursday, we carve out time. And I was just reading, you know, about national prayers that were offered for uh, the nation of Israel, two famous chapters in God's word, Nehemiah chapter 9 And Daniel chapter 9, that's the easy way to remember that, isn't it? The two nines. These two men offered national prayers for their people. And as I was meditating on Nehemiah 9, I came across two verses that I wanted to share as I conclude this series because I feel like when we ask the question, how do we get here, by and large, both the nation and the church are guilty of what I would call complacency. Listen to what Nehemiah prayed and asked God about his people. Now he's in the place here where he talks about how God had prospered the nation and they went in to take the land of Canaan, the land God gave them. And he says they, his forefathers, captured fortified cities, fortified meaning walled cities, plumbing and all this, and fertile land, They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug with vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. In other words, they didn't have to work for a thing. They inherited all of their blessings. I began to read this, and all of a sudden I had to stop and pause because I've thought about this many times But it really hit me. You know, I was born in the early 70s. Makes me young to some of you and old to others. However, in the 70s, I grew up on the backs of my grandfather, who was in World War II, and that generation. And he grew up on the backs of his generation, which, by the way, if you just go back two generations, they were living in dirt floor cabins, No electricity, no TV, no paved roads. Are you all listening to me? No indoor plumbing. 
This is two generations ago on my family's side. I could take you near the hollow where my grandfather grew up. By the way, you know why they called it a hollow? Because they grew moonshine back in them days, and you better holler before you walked up in there. You may not come out. But I could show you where he was, where he was in the vicinity, and they grew up rough. Well, he got a job and had a house and passed it on and passed it on, and then eventually here I come. So in my generation, those of you who are around 50, I'll just speak to us, okay? We grew up in prosperity. As a matter of fact, when we started out in life, we had twice as much as our grandparents had when they ended life. And most of us within 10 years of our married life had more than our parents had at the end of their life. And most of it was handed. I'm not saying that some of us didn't have to work and dig and scratch, but I'm saying the platform upon which we could build was already done. The infrastructure was laid, and we grew up in prosperity. Do you know what happens when people live in luxury and prosperity? They have time on their hands. You know what happens when people have time on their hands and luxury and money and they're not digging and scratching? Well, you've heard the old saying that an idle mind is the what? The devil's workshop. You know, sometimes when we have too much leisure, we get into trouble, don't we? And we start seeking things to please our desires. And this is what happened in Nehemiah. And he's telling the story of his people. And he said, God, you blessed our people with fortified cities and lands and houses and fruit trees. They didn't have to work for a thing. All they had to do is walk in and begin to enjoy. Now notice what he says. They ate to the full and were well nourished. You want to know what that literally says? They were fattened. They ate to the full and they were fattened. They reveled in your great goodness. Well, what happens when you become fattened? <clears throat> well, unfortunately, many times this is what happens. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. They became fat. They became rebellious. And God had to judge them. This was the nation of Israel. Now, when you think about this and you put it in its context, we begin to realize that sometimes it's easier to serve God faithfully in the midst of trouble and wanting than it is to serve Him when we're fat and full. Because when we're fat and full, let me use that language, we don't have any need for God. Our IRAs are stuffed to the hilt. We're not worried about going home and not having anything in the refrigerator. 
As a matter of fact, what we're really worried about is what we're going to do to entertain ourselves today because life is just boring. And we need something to amuse ourselves. You know what amuse means? To, to muse, M-U, means to think. You put an A on front of it, it negates it. What can we do so that we don't have to think about a thing? Let's amuse ourselves. And Nehemiah said, God, every time your people got to amusing themselves, they got in trouble. Perhaps that's where America is today and why we are where we are. Perhaps that's why the church, by and large, when I say the church, I'm talking about God's people in America. Maybe that's why we are where we are today. That is, piles and piles of churches closing the doors, shutting down you know, Jesus had a message for his church in the book of Revelation, and it's the church of Sardis. Very interesting place. And I think Nehemiah and Sardis go together in the idea that both uh, tell the history of people who compromised with their culture, and they gave in. As a matter of fact, if you went to Sardis and you looked, there would now be where the church of Sardis was, a temple set up to the goddess Artemis. Artemis was a, uh, a sensual goddess, uh, a goddess of, uh, I'm trying to be G-rated here, a, a goddess of what we would call immorality. She celebrated sexuality and so forth, and I'll leave it right there. If you want to Google it, you can Google it, okay? But that's what happened. The church was right beside this culture of sensuality. And what Jesus did was he came in and he started looking at this church and he evaluated them and here's what he said to them. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Listen to what he says. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Man, I tell you what, when people see you on Facebook, they see all the drama. They see all the life and the lights and the smoke. And they see you got it going. And they think that, man, that is the place. But listen to what Jesus says. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You are dead. What do you mean by that, Jesus? You are dead. You have the reputation before men of being alive, but you're dead. By the way, reputation is what people think about you. Character is what God thinks about you. So here he lays out the foundation that you have been in your society, and a lot of people think that you really got it going on, but I see inside your heart you're dead. You don't live by my truth. You don't honor my truth. You honor the culture instead of my word. And you have caved. This is what he's telling them, by the way. Now, listen to what he says. Wake up. Three things he tells them to do. Number one, wake up. I almost titled my message today, The Woke Church. Are y'all awake this morning, by the way? Wake up. Listen to what he tells the church. Wake up! The second thing is, we could say this, uh, he says, and strengthen what remains. 
we could say hold on to, you know, wake up, hold on to what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're, you're half-hearted. You're, you have one foot on this side of the fence and one foot on that side of the fence and you don't know which side you stand on. So wake up, number two, hold on or remember what you've received and heard. Okay, now think with me for a minute. What you've received and heard. What is the church built on? We have one foundation, which is Jesus Christ, right? And upon the foundation of Christ, the apostles and the prophets built upon that the truth of the Scripture. What is the church to be built on? The Word of God. What had, what had the church in Sardis forgotten? They had forgotten the truths and the Word of God. What God said about truth and life and what we're to, to live and how we're to do it. So what are they to do? Remember what you've received and heard. Number two, hold on to it. Keep it. And number three, when you find yourself out of line with God's Word, turn around. We call that repent. Change the mind and the behavior and go the way God says to go. Now notice what happens. If you will not, wake up. If you will not, wake up. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. By the way, soiling of garments is a metaphor for immorality. They have not caved into the culture, soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." A remnant, a remnant in this church in Sardis. By the way, if you go there today in the seven churches, you know what has overtaken the church of Sardis. There are still archaeology sites there, but by and large, Islam has taken over that entire area, and there are mosques all through that. Very, very powerful. Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then he repeats as he often does, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this was a message that Jesus told the church and the churches, Do not cave into culture. Because if you do, I will pull myself out and I will judge you and you will fall with the world. But instead, stand upon the truth. Remember what you were told. Remember what you were built upon. Hold on to it and be faithful. This is his message to not just Sardis, but to Trinity and to the churches in Christiansburg and the state of Virginia, in America and around the world. This is what we build our truth on, not man's opinion. Now, when we think about this and we apply this to our culture today, there's an incredible push upon the churches today to conform to what we've been calling cultural Marxism. Now, the idea of the radical left is simply this, that America is so bad, so bad, that it cannot be restored. It cannot be renewed or revived. It must be completely restored, regarded, disregarded, and then rebuilt so that 
After it's rebuilt, there can be a place of tolerance, equity, justice, and equality. So tear it completely down, destroy everything in it, and rebuild it on secular humanism. And when you do that, then you'll have this utopia that Marx and all of his colleagues thought about. Now, here is a professor who I won't name. It's on there if you want to go back and look and zoom in on him. But very famous professor taught in some of the most prestigious universities in America and also in Amsterdam and so forth. This was a quote that he had that was astounding. He said, peace is not patriotic. Peace is subversive. Because peace anticipates a very different world than the one in which we live, a world where the U.S. would have no place. Now, if you don't get that, you need to go back and meditate on it. This is a man that's calling for war. And the U.S. and our country has to be completely destroyed because the United States is impossible of being a place living in peace. Now, that is somebody that teaches uh, Ivy League school people and highly educated people who go on to be justices and Congress and people like that, okay? So just contemplate that for a moment. How does Marx and Marxism intend to conquer? I have been over some of this. I'm just going to hammer it out this morning so you can have it as a reservoir. But this is how Marx said to do it. First of all, you have to destroy the nuclear family. A mother and a father in a home that has children and raises those children to then have a mother and a father. And when that mother and father die and they can pass their wealth on to the next generation, you have to abolish that. Because if you don't, you'll never have Marxism. The second thing was you have to destroy the Judeo-Christian faith. That is, the Old Testament and New Testament belief in one God uh, and Jesus Christ and then the principles that he says that establish a society. You have to destroy that. By the way, I went off on a rabbit trail this morning. Let me just put one foot in the trail. If you have ever taken a tour of Washington, D.C., and you've ever done it with a noted historian who knows what he's talking about, you cannot help but understand the Word of God and the images of God on every government building in Washington. One of the most powerful things is when you walk into the Supreme Court and you see that huge picture up there of Moses uh, in the chair with the Word of God laying in his lap and the apostles. And what it's saying is you walk in that building that truth and justice is founded upon what? The law of God. I mean, there's just no way to get around that, folks. And it's plastered in every building. By the way, I told them earlier, there's a big movement today to remove every bit of that from the government buildings in our nation's capital. Did you know that? Destroy it. But the Word of God is everywhere. But they wanted to destroy that, to destroy the Judeo-Christian faith, get rid of all those things, and then... This is how you propagate it. You use the media, that is media, news outlets, technology. Today we could say social media, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, big companies, people that advertise, use every bit of this as a way to, listen, reflect and direct the culture. 
show people what's cool and then tell them that if they don't do this, it's not cool. So you reflect it and then you direct it. And the idea is not equality. They don't want to have equality. I told you last week, critical race theory was never designed to bring people together. It was designed only to divide. None of this is to unite, it's to divide. Class war. And that which was once condemned must be now celebrated. And that which was celebrated must now be condemned. Go back 30 years. Uh, homosexual relationships 30 years ago were what? Condemned. Today they are to be what? Celebrated. Traditional marriage today is to be, 30 years ago was celebrated. Today it's to be what? Condemned. Because you're an oppressor. By the way, if that's what you hold to. I'm just, I'm just laying it out for you folks. And then, uh, dissenting voices must be shamed and ultimately silenced. This is what the movement in Marxism said. If anybody disagrees with this, scream louder than them. Scream louder. And they would tell the media, it doesn't matter if you're right, it only matters if you're first. Just report it, throw it out there and make up your own story. Make it up from your vantage point and get it out and once you get it out into the minds of people, it doesn't matter because people won't investigate it anyway. And then empower the government to do the funding and promote the agenda and control and punish anyone who opposes. How do you do it? By passing laws. And then you can even refuse to accreditate and fund institutions and schools that don't bow the knee to whatever social agenda you want. I gave this instance this morning, earlier, that some of the schools, and I know some of seminaries, right now that are struggling with federal funding. Okay, some seminaries allow students to come in and they get grants. And those grants are given by the federal government to pay the school. Well, now the federal government is saying if this school doesn't abide by and allow LGBT and all these other things to come in and not only be students but involved in faculty and hiring and so forth, you will not receive funding. Now, by the way, when you pinch off the funding to a school, you pinch off students and resources. What happens to a school that doesn't have students and resources? It just folds. And that's exactly what we call this canceling. We will cancel you one way or the other. We'll cut the students off and make you seem to be hated and you're a bigot and you're this and they're that and you're anti-this and anti... And then we'll cut your money off. And when we do that, we control you. And Marx said, you know, if you can create an environment like this, Marxism can get its tentacles and its hooks right into the culture. Now, how do they do that? Well, under this one theme, I'm just throwing out one, paint the picture of the oppressed and the oppressor. And I've already been through this. The oppressor is these people, and the oppressed are these people. Get them all to join in, and then you have all of this division you know, I told you before, Black Lives Matter was never formed to unite. It was only formed to divide. They said originally they were cultural Marxists. They were trained Marxists. It was just to divide. But we, were, we learned last week that the gospel unites. It's totally opposite. So we have the answer to that. 
doesn't matter what color you are. So what Marxism did through academia is it said this, what you must do is slowly and gradually win the hearts and the minds of people. And when you do that, you integrate cultural Marxism into these five major areas and you use these means that we just talked about to shame and to show them what's right, put pressure, finances, and so forth, and you change these five areas, and now you're set up and established for Marxism. Now, last week I talked a little bit about social and political. I want to talk about religious pressure, cultural Marxism on religious pressure. Somebody sent this to me, so I thought I'd share it with you. This came out just a week or so ago. The United Methodist Church celebrates the first drag queen certified as a candidate uh, for United Methodist Ministry. And the title is Speaking in a New Way to New People. Now, the left just celebrated it. Y'all know what a drag queen is, right? It's a man that dresses up to be a woman, okay? We have United Methodist churches here in Christiansburg. I, we have them in my place. I mean, they're all over the place. So now there's going to be another split in the church. But what happened was several years ago, the United Methodist Church began to cower and bow the knee to social pressure. You all listen carefully. Karen and I went on a vacation when this was all going on, and we saw the rainbow flag flying out on the lawn of a United Methodist Church in a state down south, and I told her this will be the downfall of this denomination. Because what they thought was, we'll show love, we'll embrace, well, guess what happened? They flew the rainbow flag, and now they're going to have a drag queen in their leadership. There is no turning back. No turning back. And this is how the cultural Marxism takes roots. Now, what do they do and what are the ways that the secular left seeks to remake America? <clears throat> We've pounded on this, but here it goes. Rewrite the past to control the future. Destroy the monuments. Implement the 1619 Project <clears throat> to show that America's constitution was built upon the backs of white racists and slaves. And therefore, it's all got to be destroyed. Number two, use diversity to divide and destroy. You pick out the major group that you want to destroy and you get everybody else against them. You create war and then you create this diversity and you use it to divide them. Divide and conquer. Number three, leverage freedom of speech for only one side. And I shared earlier, I'll share it again, in your workplace... And I will bet this is a true test case. You could go in there and celebrate anything about LGBTQ that you wanted to, and you would be patted on the back and told that you were so tolerant and they appreciated you and you were the kind of person they needed. But if you went in and said that it's wrong and that Jesus was the only way to heaven and God's word was absolute truth and anything else wasn't right, they would stone you out of the place. And you know that I'm telling the truth. So leverage freedom of speech for only one side. I'm just sharing this with you because I want you all to know what is going on. Number four, 
use propaganda to control the minds of people. Now, what is propaganda? Propaganda was largely a concept invented by Hitler, which means that you just come up with the most bizarre, crazy thing, and you feed it to people long enough and over and over again until eventually people get so inundated with it, they either don't care or they actually start to believe it. And you just pound, 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 and the next thing you know, people have been like, you know what, I just don't care, just leave me alone. Give me my stimulus check and leave me alone. By the way, you better fact check the fact checkers. I was telling somebody this story last week, so I thought I'd just share it with all of you. Recently, I was, uh, you know, used to in the past, we were like, is this true? Snopes.com, fact check. Well, a, a year or so ago, I was looking something up, and I had looked it up in years past, but I wanted to capture it on a screen so that I could have, you know, the quote evidence. And I went to Snopes, and I typed something in, and the rascals had changed what they had said years before. And I thought, wait a minute here, I remember reading this. So I called a friend who knew more than I did, and he said, oh, man, he said, you're kidding me. You don't know. I said, no, I don't. He said, you better fact check the fact checkers. And so he put me on a route to fact check Snopes.com. Well, who owns and runs Snopes.com? Well, you can look that up for yourself. But let me just say it this way. The largest LGBT community in Pennsylvania, in a college there, is the one who inputs the information on Snopes.com. There's another gentleman who really doesn't care much about America. His name is George Soros. He owns many, many fact-checking sources on the webs. So where do we go get our information? We go to the web. Well, when we fact-check something, who we trust the fact-checkers, right? I mean, we think that they are fact-checkers. But the facts come from their facts, not the facts. So you can't even trust the fact-checkers anymore, folks. This is part of propaganda, okay? Number five, sexualize the children. Start at the earliest age. Listen to how crafty this is. Appeal to desire. You tell these kids at the earliest age, you go out and you live as promiscuous as you want to. Don't you worry about what your mommy and daddy tell you, and if something happens and you mess up, you come on over and we've got Planned Parenthood to take care of any kind of problems. Uh, whether it be pregnancy or some kind of disease that you get, we'll do it, we'll keep it under the radar, and your parents won't even have to know. And by the way, when you turn 18, make sure you put us back in office because we're the ones that are here for you. Now, you all think I'm making this up. Go research it. They said you catch the young generation and appeal to their desire, give them what they want, and they will continue to put you in office. Give them funds and money and sexual liberty and freedom, and they will continually vote you in. Very well strategized, isn't it? Vilify capitalism, deify socialism, you know, capitalism, uh, white man's building upon the backs of slaves, do away with it, it only promotes greed and so forth. Socialism, that is equality, where it's equal, everything can be distributed fairly, and therefore, if you do that, it'll all work out well. By the way, there's not one place where socialism has worked out well. 
You know why? Because eventually you run out of somebody else's money. The government, folks, doesn't make money. They only handle money. And where do they get money from? From you, the taxpayer. And they sure like to spend it, don't they? Number seven, join with radical Islam to destroy America and Christianity. And I just want to show you this because you may or may not believe me. Don't ever take my word for something. You go look it up. But how can the radical left join with radical Islam? Their ideologies are totally different. The radical left would be radical feminism, radical LGBTQ. Do you know what radical Islam says? Crush the women. Okay, a man can have X number of them. Crush the women. Stone and kill homosexuals, lesbians, transgenders, and anybody else. How do they pair these two up? Well, as the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they have paired up with one another, and there was this foundation back in the 80s called the Council on Islamic Education. And that council has now changed its name to the American Textbook Council. Let me read this to you because this is their website. I screen captured it so you didn't think I was making it up. The American Textbook Council is an independent national organization established in 1989. The council reviews history textbooks and other educational materials. It is dedicated to improving the social studies curriculum and civic education in the nation's elementary and high schools. What this council is, is it's a group of radical Muslim Brotherhood people who go into every American textbook. They have federal funding, federal aid, and they go in and they review everything that's said about Islam. And they have the right to change and alter how Islam is portrayed in the elementary and high school textbooks. And of course, cultural Marxism is applied. Islam is no longer the dominant one under Muhammad that chopped people's heads off and pillaged their women and stole their things. If you don't believe me, just go read a good history book. And they conquered by the sword. They were no longer that. They are the religion of peace. And therefore, your children should learn the pillars of Islam and wear the hijab and bow down the carpet and bow toward Mecca and learn the prayers and learn how to do that. And you know what? The people have said, uh, we like this council, we're going to fund it, and this is how this works in your neighborhood. The federal government funds these people, they review the curriculum, and they tell the federal government, okay, now you can give them the books. The federal government then tells the local states, we will give you X amount of money if you teach this and do this and do that. If you don't do it, you don't get the money. Well, guess what? The counties and the states look and say, if we don't have the federal money, we can't function. But if we take their money, we have to teach their curriculum. Do you all understand what a mess we are in? And by the way, I just picked one thing about the textbooks. This is one thing. This is exactly, by the way, how evolution, Darwinian evolution, got in the textbooks and absolutely decimated it. Get rid of God. You know, that was a staged event, by the way. 
So you can go back and research that as well. And this is exactly how it happened. So the point is, is that they teamed up with radical Islam to destroy America. Number eight, vilify and cancel all opposition. Now, need I say anything about this? Probably not, because it's on the news. All these airlines, all these people piling together the woke culture, now saying that not only, uh, you cannot only, you can't remain silent anymore. As a matter of fact, if you don't join us, we will point you out, and we don't care who you are, and we'll let everybody know that you are an Islamophobe, a bigot, uh, anti-this and an anti-that and that. And we'll jump on you and we'll cancel you, put you out of business. This is what you call a bully. A bully. And that's what it's intended to do. Now, by the way, we've been pounding all along that as Christians, here's what we can do. Well, we can get so mad we can go out and tell them, tell them. What. And you know what it's going to do? They're going to go, see there? That's exactly how the oppressor behaves. Screaming and yelling and telling us this. But that, we, don't, we don't act like that. What we do is we speak the truth. We tell people that the only answer to this division and all of this problem that's going on is found right in the gospel of Jesus Christ where it doesn't matter if you're black or white or yellow or green. Everybody has to bow the knee to the Savior and come and then we become one in Him. And we can be different on the outside. I can be snow white and you can be as black as you can be and we are both striving for the same goal. You know what that is? Both of us want to look like Jesus on the inside. And we can be completely different and we can serve the same Lord God and we can become in the same image as He is and we can hold hands together. We can marry. You know, by the way, there's not one sin against a believer, a white believer marrying a black believer. Did you know that? Not one. Not one. Nor an American marrying a Chinese or any... There's, there's no sin against that. Where you come up with that stuff at? You know, I, I used to hear... You talk about... No, no wonder the church blew it, by the way. And don't say the church didn't have some faults, because she's got plenty. But what do you do? You own up to them and say they were wrong. There's not one thing in the Word of God that says that. Not one. You may not like it, but get over your prejudice. Because in Christ Jesus, we become one. And if you're a believer and they're a believer, you can marry and have some beautiful children, by the way, that serve Jesus and love Him. And you know what? If that bothers us and we are so bothered by that, we need to get on our knees before God and ask Him to forgive our prejudiced heart. Now, I'm not sounding like a racial... I'm not, I'm not a racial justice here guy. I'm a, let's preach the gospel and tell the truth that we're one in Christ Jesus, irregardless of race or color. We become one. Isn't that a wonderful message that the church has? That's our message. But how, do they, how does the radical left say that they are to accomplish this? Vilify, vilify, vilify. Well, they follow a man named Saul Alinsky. And what did Alinsky say? He wrote the book Radicals. It says use shame, ridicule, intimidation to defeat your enemy. Attack people and funding sources first if they disagree. 
and cancel them. And I, I said it this morning, somebody after I first showed Alinsky's book came up to me and said, have you ever read the preface of his book? I said, no, I didn't. Just hopped into the book and he said, well, go read the preface. Well, when you read the preface, Alinsky dedicated his book to the devil. That's who he wrote the preface to. And by the way, Hillary Clinton wrote her master's thesis on this guy. I'm not sharing anything. It's not public. It's public information. She, she studied him and his theories. And so this is exactly the trajectory that they went on. Now, am I nasty and mean for saying that? It's a fact. Just go look at it. Okay? I'm just telling you. But listen to what one man said who wasn't a believer. Here was his quote. He says, The politically correct who think it is their mission to save the world, cannot fix the problems that afflict us. Because the problems are our creation, creations, theirs and ours. Because the self-appointed social redeemers seek too much power and do not understand the source of evil and injustice. They will only make matters worse. Are you all awake? Listen to what he said. This is so powerful from an unbeliever. They are not going to make anything better because they don't understand the source of evil and injustice. Now, as a Bible-believing Christian, where is the source of evil and injustice? Where does it come from in every heart? I just said it, didn't I? Right in the inner being of man. Whether you're on the secular left or on the radical right. Every person has the ultimate problem of sin in the heart. You deny original sin. You deny the God of the Bible. You come up with a secular left. You've got to have an absolute truth somewhere. There has to be a foundational absolute truth. They don't have the answer. Because hate and injustice is in their heart just like it's in every other heart. And this man saw that. The bottom line is you cannot deny original sin. If you do, you're going to miss the whole point. And the only source that talks about original sin is what? Right here. Right here. In God's holy word, and it starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You deny that foundation, you deny Everything else. And he says you can't fix it. Dave Horowitz, a Jewish agnostic, said, by the way, he was a former Black Panther, I've repeated this, society is merely a reflection of who we are. What what you see around us and all this descent, that is a reflection of what is in the human heart. So what are we to do as a church? By the way, another quote from Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn, listen to what he says, the line separating good and evil passes not through the states or between classes nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The solution to the problem is found right here in God's Word and it has to start with me and you and you and your children and on and on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who i Sometimes I don't like to quote him. 
But nevertheless, Bonhoeffer was an interesting figure, but he had some great quotes. Listen to what he said for the believer. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Christian, to sit there and say absolutely nothing is evil in itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Sometimes it's not enough just to be quiet. Did you know that there is a time to speak? Some have said that silence is sometimes yellow, sometimes it's golden. It takes wisdom to determine which one. But we do have times to speak. Not to act is to act. And I have shared other ways you can go back in session one and learn how do we respond to this culture. You know, do we just sit there and swallow it all, or is there a time when we stand up and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Oh, how dare you not? I'm, I'm just not going to do it, because I don't believe it. Well, we'll, 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 we'll bully you, but you, you have to do what you have to do. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to cause problems for you, but I don't agree with it. And may God help us, because our job is not to win. Our job is to be faithful. So what do we do? Well, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this was his job. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Step by step, just keep explaining what's going on and what you're to do about it. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. By the way, he's writing to the church here, not to the government of the United States of America. The time will come when people will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into cultural Marxism. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. Now, if I was preaching this morning, I'd come out and take those four things. I'm boom, 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 boom. You preach the word. You be faithful, even though people will turn away from you and they don't want to listen to you. You stick to the word of God. You teach the word. And then you do these things. Endure suffering. What does that mean? Think clearly and biblically. Second of all, suffer patiently. Third, share the gospel intentionally. I'm going to preach this message sometime. It's too good for me not to. And fourth, live purposefully. This is, this is how the church responds to this. When we hear an issue or whatever, we are to think clearly about it, not propaganda. Second of all, when we speak the truth, we are to suffer patiently. Third, do the work of an evangelist. God has put each one of us in a particular place and you are where we can't go. Your pastors can't go there, only you can. You are to do the work of an evangelist. Share the gospel intentionally. And then finally, we are to live purposefully. Live on purpose. And that's how we're to do this. Now, this is so critical, so critical 
that we do this. And may God give us the strength and the power and the grace to do it and to be willing to suffer and pay the consequences. Amen? All right. Father, thank you so much this morning for your blessings. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you that we do ultimately win. We're so grateful, Lord, for your word that tells us truth from error. And we want, Lord, to honor you. It's not our responsibility to win. It's our responsibility to be faithful and to honor you. And so we thank you for the example that our Savior gave to us and he left for us. And we remember him this morning and what he did on the cross as he gave his life faithfully for the payment of our sins and to give us his righteousness. So as we celebrate that this morning, Lord, may you be glorified in our life, in our church, and in the churches in our country. Oh God, turn our hearts to you. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.